presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today we begin a series on the sovereignty of God and we're going to look at it from the life of King Nebuchadnezzar of the Old Testament who obviously was the king of Babylon. One of the problems in dealing with a subject such as sovereignty is that we sort of know what it means. We know that sovereignty means absolute rulership. But sovereignty is somewhat of a, well, it is an abstract term. In other words, if, if I were to say chair or sofa, immediately some image would pop into your mind. Uh, it might be the chair that you sit in at night or the sofa that you lie down on at the, at the house. Uh, it might be the chair where you, uh, where you have lunch. Uh, it may be the chair in your uh uh, at your work, it could be any number of things, but the point is is that when you say the word chair or you say the word sofa, you get an immediate image that pops to your mind now my the image that I get may be different from yours, but there's some things in common when we think about chair, and we sort of all are thinking about generally the same thing. but when we use the term sovereignty. That's not such a concrete term. That That is absolutely an abstract term. That's like saying freedom. We know what it is, but it's it's kind of hard to explain in some ways. And so one of the best ways to understand an abstract term such as sovereignty, and in our case the sovereignty of God, is to look at it as it appears in the life of a biblical character. Uh, when we speak of God's sovereignty, we're simply saying that God rules. He rules absolutely in creation, He rules in providence, and He rules in the way He uh, administers His grace. There is not one molecule, nor one man, nor one moment that escapes His notice. No one is able to thwart His intentions, and He reigns over both the mighty and the minuscule. And the Bible is just replete with uh, verses that indicate that. For example, in Isaiah 14, verses 24 and 27, it says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have proposed, so it will stand. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart Him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? And then, of course, there's the passage from Proverbs 21, verse 1, where it is written, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. And that's a good thing to remember, I think, particularly at this time. We've um, just been through a presidential election. And uh, I, I don't know whether your choice was the one who won or not, but there seemed to be a lot of people who were upset over the way things turned out. But the truth is, is that we have to remember that it's God who really is in control. Yes, the President A or President B may be the one who seems to be calling the shots, but in the final analysis, as we'll see, it's God who really calls the shots. Um, certainly human beings uh, 
can and do make decisions that are antagonistic to the plan and the purpose of God. And in spite of that, God still remains in control. Think about Joseph and his ten older brothers. Uh, God would God use the evil intentions of those older brothers in order to accomplish his will. Joseph didn't realize that at the time all the terrible things were happening and even in his imprisonment he still did not fully understand that. It was not until the end of his life that, uh, or uh, many years later that he was able to look back on that and see that truth. I, I guess that the proverb for us is hindsight's always twenty twenty. but you'll remember in, in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 Joseph looking at his brothers, those ten brothers who had sold him into prison uh, a couple of decades earlier, and he said to them, he said, you meant evil against me. In other words, when you did what you did, you meant to do what you did. You had every intention to do it. It wasn't a mistake. You meant evil against me. But he didn't stop there. He didn't put a period there. He put a comma and he, what did else did he say? He said, "But God meant it for good." And we need to keep that uh, keep that in mind. Uh, sometimes God allows our decisions to take their course, but the truth is, is that whatever goes on, God ultimately is sovereign. And Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the Babylonians, is certainly a good illustration of that truth. He was chosen by God to conquer and to rule over the Hebrew people for a time. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar was enslaved by his own pride. And it is fascinating that through the ministry of the prophet Daniel and his three friends, God confronted this mighty king about his sin and eventually humbled him before all of his subjects. But it took a while to do so. And King Nebuchadnezzar became what appears to be a changed man. So the purpose of this series is, I guess you could say, basically fourfold. First of all, we want to see see how God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment on the nation of Judah. Uh, secondly, we want to see uh, how the testimony of God's people, uh, Daniel and his, uh, his three friends, can impact the godly as God works. Uh, uh, thirdly, we want to uh, we want to understand that seeing and hearing about God is insufficient for salvation. God has to be experienced, and we'll see that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And then finally, the purpose of this little short series is to understand that God is always in control, regardless of how things appear. So, with that in mind, we begin our. Our little series on the sovereignty of God, lessons from the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. You should have a, an, an outline there with you, and we're going to pretty much follow that uh, follow that outline. Today's lesson is uh, I've entitled "Hearing About the Power of God." Just by way of background, remember that after uh, well. Let's go back a little, even a little uh, farther to get a history. Remember that uh, the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew monarchy, was a was a singular monarchy uh, for about 120 years under the leadership of first of Saul, and then David, and then finally Solomon. And when Solomon died, uh, when Solomon died. His son Rehoboam um, 
had an opportunity to sort of ease up on the people there and for things to continue as they had been as a single monarchy. But the uh, but what happened is he decided he would be uh, even more uh, difficult than his father Solomon had been, and as a result of that, the uh, the kingdom split in two uh, into two factions. There was a northern kingdom that uh, took the name of Israel. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's referred to as Israel. Sometimes it's referred to as Samaria because Samaria was the capital of that. It was comprised of ten tribes. Uh, the southern kingdom uh, is comprised of two tribes, and that's uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and it bore the name of, uh, of Judah. Um, Benjamin, of course, was the tribe in which the city of Jerusalem was located, and Jerusalem certainly was the, uh, uh, the capital of the, of the southern kingdom. In 722... Uh, Assyria defeated the uh, and scattered the northern kingdom of Israel. It essentially ended at that point. It doesn't mean that everybody in those tribes were all destroyed, but it does mean they were scattered all over the place, and essentially that, that kingdom ended in 722 B.C. In 612, Assyria was defeated by the next uh, empire that arose that is uh, referred to as the Babylonian or sometimes the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And of course its great king, uh, and he is the subject of our discussion, is uh, is Nebuchadnezzar. When uh, around 605 or 606, just a few years later, uh, judgment began to come on Judah, on the on that nation of Judah, uh, from the Babylonians. Uh, there were three, uh, actually three invasions by Babylon of that, uh, of that kingdom of Judah. As I mentioned, the first took place around 605, and it was at that point that Daniel and his friends apparently were taken captive and taken into the land of Babylon. They probably were in their teens, at the time. Uh, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 7, uh, it says that those first contingent who were taken uh, were made eunuchs for, uh, for the king of Babylon. Um, Josephus, the historian, um, seems to agree with, uh, with that. Of course, it doesn't matter whether Josephus agrees with it or not. What matters is what the, what the Bible says. Let me just read you, and you can follow along in your notes there from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 because this is Daniel's account of that first invasion. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Notice, it was the Lord who delivered the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. They were to be trained for three years, and after that to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah. Daniel 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, notice what's happening is these uh, these Hebrew teenagers were being re-socialized. They were to learn the language and the literature. They were to learn uh, astronomy and astrology and all of these things because they were going to become eventually the king's advisors. Uh, obviously, the king was just everywhere. They uh, they invaded and captured people. They took what they felt like was the the best and the brightest of the people, and they would put them into essentially the king's cabinet. So here are some here are some guys who are being taken away from home, never going to see home again, and. Uh, and yet it's interesting that in spite of that, they never lost their faith in God. Daniel and his three friends learned the language of the Chaldeans. They learned all the history. They learned the background. They learned all the astronomy and all the other things that, uh, that they were supposed to be learning. Yet in spite of that fact, and they knew all that stuff, they never swallowed it. They, uh, they maintained their integrity. They stayed true to the Lord as obviously the scriptures uh, bear out. But here we see them being re-socialized. For example, Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. But his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Prince of Bel. Uh, Bel is uh, is the same uh, Babylonian god as the one called Marduk. And so uh, they just trying to re-identify these guys so that the the language that they're hearing is a different language they're called by different names and uh, and it's uh, and it's the idea of trying to get their minds to change but obviously these three guys minds never did change and and again and we'll see this in our second session for example the name uh, uh, Azariah uh, the name Azariah means Yahweh is a help or Yahweh is my help. And yet his name was changed to uh, Abednego, which means servant of the shining fire. And that's significant because the Babylonians worshipped fire. They, One of their gods, their chief deities, was a fire god. And we'll see that in the next session when the three Hebrew children are thrown into the fiery furnace because what we'll see is a confrontation between the true God and uh, Babylonians' God of uh, a fire. So that's what essentially happened in the first invasion. There was a, there was a second and third in, uh, invasion. The second invasion occurred around 597 B.C. Uh, that was when we believe that Ezekiel was deported. He certainly had a different ministry from that of Daniel or Jeremiah who were his contemporaries. And then finally, the third invasion occurred in 586 B.C. And it was at that point that the uh, that the temple was finally just destroyed and everything was hauled off to uh, to Babylon at that time. Let's read uh, in Second Chronicles 36, if you'll notice in your notes there, beginning at verse 11, because it has to do with this, this third and final invasion. It says, Zedekiah was uh, 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath 
in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and of the people became more and more unfaithful. Notice, this is the explanation of why Judah um, was under the uh, under the essentially the judgment of God. They had become unfaithful. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through His messengers again and again. That were the prophets who came and just called upon them to repent. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. he who is often reproved uh, shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy, the writer of Proverbs said in Proverbs 29, verse 1. He brought, them, he brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. God handed over all of them to Nebuchadnezzar. Who handed them over? God himself handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And then in verse 20, it says, He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And when was that? That was 70 years later. So these, most of these people would never ever see their homeland again. There would be a repatriation under Cyrus the Persian when the Persian Empire came, but uh, those people who did come back and see it were those who had been very young. There's no, there's no indication that uh, that Daniel or his three friends would be among those people. Now, we pick up our story today, and we're talking about hearing about the power of God. Some of you thought we'd never, we'd never get here. But in Daniel chapter 2, it says, In the second year of his reign, that is in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now remember, what is Daniel doing in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? He's in school. He's been uh, placed in there at the University of Babylon, or whatever they called it, and he's becoming, uh, he's going through all this schooling so that he can become an advisor for King Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. Notice how confident that these guys were. Oh, sure, you know, we know that the gods reveal things through dreams, they were saying. You tell us what, uh, what, what kind of dream you had, the contents of the dream. We'll tell you exactly what it means. Then the astrologers <clears throat> answered the king, you know, you tell us, we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Notice, uh, apparently Nebuchadnezzar was getting a little suspicious about his spiritual advisors. 
because they seem to be very confident. Tell us a dream. We'll tell you what it means. And he said, well, let's just see. If you're really all that spiritual and if you're on top of this thing and if you're in tune with these gods, we'll tell you what, not only do I want the interpretation, you just tell me the dream and that way I'll know that you're really in touch. And we begin to see some things about Nebuchadnezzar that uh, a very demanding person, as we'll see, a very not only prideful but also a very uh, angry, raging kind of individual, which I guess in many ways shouldn't surprise, at least some of those qualities shouldn't surprise us because, uh, because he is an eastern monarch. Uh, in verse 10 it says, The astrologers answered the king, Well, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. And this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Again, think about this guy. You know, they're giving him a little back talk and saying, you know, what you're asking is really difficult. Nobody's ever asked this before. He says, okay, well, I'll just get rid of all you guys and I'll get me a whole new set of spiritual advisors. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Notice, not only the the old veteran advisors, but the ones who were in training at the time were also to be put to death. I, I guess Nebuchadnezzar must have thought, well, you know, their minds are being polluted by these uh, same guys. So he's just going to get rid of all of them and just, I guess, just start from scratch. It says, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Notice, you see the grace of God already in action right here in spite of the fact that these are very difficult times and, and certainly perilous for Daniel and his friends. But God gives them grace and is going to give them time. And notice, the great thing is they even that Daniel at this point even has access to the king, which is just almost unthinkable. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So they have a prayer meeting and they say, Lord, please reveal this truth to us. And what does God do? He does just exactly that. Then Daniel went to Arioch and said to him, Don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I'll interpret his dream for him. Now, the, the next little verse or two here, uh, I think, is, is rather humorous, and I think you'll see why here in a moment. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. What was it Arioch said? He said, I found a guy. Well, of course, Arioch's just, uh, uh, he's, he's one of the king's servants, and he's doing his best to... Uh, to feather his own nest here. Look, look, look here! What I found, King. When you, uh, if this guy gives you the the real skinny, uh, just remember where he came from now, and and who sent him over here, who brought him to you. So you know, just looking out for number one. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, 
Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now that should remind us of someone, someone else in the Old Testament. If you need a hint, someone in the first part of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. That's right. We're talking about Joseph. Because... After Joseph had been in prison for 13 years, and in fact those last two years, remember after he, after he had been um, in prison for 11 years, uh, the, the king's baker, Pharaoh's baker, and also his wine taster had gotten in trouble with Pharaoh and he had put them in jail for a period of time. And while they were there, they both had some really unusual dreams. And of course, uh, Joseph was able to uh, understand dreams and, and give the interpretation of the meaning of the dream. And so they, uh, they approached uh, Joseph, and Joseph told them all that. And, uh, and one of the things he told the wine taster, he said, when you get back to Pharaoh and you're putting the cup in his hand in three days from now, he said, please remember me to Pharaoh because I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, I am here unjustly. Get me out of this place. And it's a good example that after 11 years of imprisonment, even Joseph still didn't understand why he was where he was. Just seemed to have no idea whatsoever. But of course, what happened is that uh, the wine taster was just so delighted to get back out of the, get out of that prison and get back into the king's presence, where he could sip the king's wine and then hand the cup to him. That uh, that he just forgot all about Joseph. And it was two years later when Pharaoh started had those strange dreams about the the fat cattle and the skinny cattle and the fat ears of corn and the skinny ears of corn and nobody could make heads heads nor tails out of whatever what it meant and it was like the uh, the uh, the wine taster all of a sudden you know it's, it's like he snapped his fingers and said oh goodness Pharaoh, do you, you remember when I was in the doghouse with you a couple of years ago and uh, I, you threw me into prison for a little while and there was a guy down there, didn't even call him by name, probably didn't know his name, but there was a fella down there who, who explained to me exactly what my dream meant, told me what was going to happen, and it came to pass just exactly like he said. And of course, Joseph is immediately brought into Pharaoh's presence and Pharaoh... Uh, tells him I've had this dream I understand you can interpret dreams is that right and uh, see now if I'd been Joseph and probably many of you would too uh, that would be the point at which we would say well I'll tell you you've sure got the right guy up here because I really know a lot about dreams and I sure do know how to interpret them but before we look at your dream you know we need to talk about a major medical plan we need to talk about 401k we need to talk about a house down on the Nile we need to talk about uh, a chariot driver all these kind of things where we're going to make our best deal because Pharaoh's in a place where he needs something and we we are the only person who can give him what he needs. And so our tendency would be to make our best deal. Is that what Joseph did? No. He said essentially the same thing Daniel said in this passage. He said, you know, it's not in me. 
But God will reveal this. And he glorified God throughout. And that's what Daniel does here. And he says... uh, he has. We'll go back to uh, verse uh, twenty-seven or twenty-eight. Yeah, verse twenty-eight of uh, of Daniel, of Daniel two. <clears throat> there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. So this has some. The dream had something to do with the future. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O King, your mind turned to things to come, and the the revealer of mysteries showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than other living men. See, again, the humility. He's not, he refuses to take the glory. But so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may uh, understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And it's at this point that Daniel gives a rather detailed description of the statue. Remember, it was a multi-metallic statue. The head was made of gold. The chest and arms were of silver. The belly and thigh eyes were of bronze, the legs were of iron, and then there was some sort of uh, composite material in the feet of iron and clay. Uh, It's interesting as you look at that um, and think about it that the, uh, the value of the metals decrease as you go down the statue, but the strength of the metals increase. And what we uh, we know from what he says later that uh, that the gold, the head of gold, represented uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon. And we know from studying our history that uh, the silver was representative of the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed uh, Babylon, and then Greece under the leadership of uh, Alexander. Uh, followed that. That would be the bronze. And then the iron, of course, was the, the, the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome. And, of course, the, then there was this rock that was cut out without hands. Uh, and it fell on the feet of the statue, crushed the feet. The whole statue crumbled, turned into dust, and the whole thing blew away. And then this rock that was cut out without hands grew into an enormous mountain. And, uh, and Daniel says that's what the dream was. And he begins then to interpret what it means. He says, this was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you... Notice, it's the God of heaven who has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed mankind and beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And then in verse 44, he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision. And then he says, 
the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future, the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. And again, he's certainly calling... That is, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen, not not only uh, telling him the dream, but giving him the interpretation of the dream. Uh, Notice the passage there just to the left of what we were reading in Psalm 2, verses 7 through 12. And Psalm 2 is probably the, uh, well, I think it is, the most uh, quoted psalm. psalm in in all of the new testament i will pro i will proclaim the decree of the lord he said to me you are my son today i have become your father ask of me and i will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession you will rule them with an iron scepter you will dash them to pieces like pottery Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. That psalm is ascribed to David in uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. But this rock that was cut out without hands is none other than the Lord Jesus Himself who established His kingdom and that kingdom continues to grow. He rules over that kingdom right now uh, from heaven and uh, there will be a time when it will be obvious to everybody on the face of this earth that He alone is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Uh, Notice also the passage just below that from Matthew chapter 21 that bears that out. It says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls, that is, he on whom the stone falls, will be crushed. And he's talking about the fact, do we, do we fall on our face before God and be broken because of our sinfulness and realize that we need to turn to Christ for Him to have mercy on us? Or do we in our obstinance, in our stubbornness, continue our own way and one day the rock will fall on us and crush us and we will ultimately perish. I think it's it's worth repeating at this point. Remember if if you turn back over to uh, turn your notes back over to page 1 and look at that passage there from Jeremiah 27. In fact, I, I think we uh, we skipped over that when when we were reading a little bit earlier. But this has to do with a deportation to Babylon. And the reason I want to read this is because I want you to see how God refers to Nebuchadnezzar. It says uh, from Jeremiah 27 verses... Well, we'll just start at verse 1 and read through verse 7 to, to get the whole context. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, now remember Zedekiah was the, the final ruler when, the, when the, the final deportation took place and the, the temple was burned and it was all over. Early in the reign of Zedekiah, king, uh, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to uh, Jeremiah. 
from the Lord. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. God gives gives rulership to whom? He says, to anyone I please. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Notice, now that's not a threat. That's a promise. God says, I'm going to hand over Judah. I'm going to hand over all of these countries around here to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he refers to him as my servant. Now as you'll see, Nebuchadnezzar is not a believer. But he is God's servant. He doesn't know he's God's servant. He has no clue he's God's servant. But he is God's servant because God is the one who, who has orchestrated all of this. Remember that, uh, that passage from John's Gospel where, where Jesus appears before uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and, uh, and Pilate asks him some things and, and Jesus, uh, Jesus remains silent there. And and Pilate says, You're not going to answer me? He says, Don't you realize that I have the authority to turn you loose and I have the authority to have you crucified? <clears throat> Remember Jesus' response. He said, Had it not been given to you, you would have no authority over me at all. So even there, Jesus is acknowledging as He stands there all bloodied and beaten up before Pilate that He reminds Pilate that Pilate is where He is because God has placed Him there. And Pilate would probably be arguing, say, oh no, Caesar Augustus or, or Caesar is the one who placed me here. But no, no. Caesar might have been the one who placed you there but it was God working through Caesar who put you there. It's just like, why did uh, you know we we celebrated uh, uh, when we celebrate Christmas? We we think about uh, we read the the passage from Luke chapter two, and we uh, we we remember it was because of Caesar Augustus' decree that Joseph and Mary left Nazareth and traveled about eighty five or ninety miles south to go to Bethlehem. Why would they want to do that? What an inconvenience! What an awful thing for a woman that far along in her pregnancy to have to make a trip like that. Why in the world would that happen? He said, well, it's just one of those things, you know, Caesar Augustus just did what he did, said what he said, and it was a decree so they had to go. No, 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 no. You need to realize that centuries earlier, the prophet Micah had said that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And so what did God do? He moved on the heart of a pagan emperor named Caesar Augustus so that Caesar Augustus who was no not concerned at all about Joseph or a pregnant teenager named Mary or any kind of prophecies that had to do with with Jewish religion all Caesar was concerned about was his tax roll he wanted to be sure he was getting he was generating enough income so that he could pay his armies and take care of the expansion of the empire. And what did God do? He used that man in order to get that couple where they needed to be so that baby would be born at that exact spot. So in the same sense, you can see that 
Caesar Augustus was serving God, not realizing that he wasn't. It doesn't mean he was a saved person. But we all serve God in one way or the other. Notice he says, Now hand all your countries over to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson. His grandson was Belshazzar. You remember he's the one that was uh, drinking uh, wine out of the, the goblets and the, the, the vessels that he had taken from, uh, from the temple of the, uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, until the time for his land comes, that would be when the uh, the Medo-Persians, the Persians and the Medes who had joined together, would uh, would come in and overrun Babylon, and that that empire would end. It says, then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. So again, what we see is that Daniel has told the dream, and he's told the meaning of the dream. So what's happened? Nebuchadnezzar's heard about the power of God. Now let's see what his response is. <clears throat> Go back to Daniel chapter 2, the second side of your notes, and we'll pick up, uh, pick up the story there in, uh, what is that, about verse 46. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering, an incense be presented to him. It was, it was almost like... He was at the point of worshiping this guy, Daniel. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Now it sounds almost as if, and if we didn't have more information than this, it sounds almost as if uh, Nebuchadnezzar had become a believer. said, Why, goodness, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But what we discover is in the next chapter, and we'll see this in our next study, is that essentially what Nebuchadnezzar did was he simply added the, the, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, the true God, to his own pantheon. He just became another God among many of the gods of the Babylonians. Then it says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Now you talk about a setup for trouble. That's it right there. Now, uh, our study on the sovereignty of God is not going to take us to Daniel chapter 6. But think about it. You've got these uh, teenage Jewish boys who had been in university learning all these things. And now what we discover in this verse and in the verse that follows is they're all promoted. Now can you imagine that? Suppose you'd been one of those uh, Chaldeans, one of those Magi, one of those diviners. One of uh, You were a natural-born Chaldean. You'd been working your way up through the bureaucratic ranks all of those years. And you figured it wasn't going to be long before you were going to... You'd probably have the king's ear. And all of a sudden, these people who were brought in in chains from the land of Judah are now the ones who are put in charge. You can imagine the jealousy that would develop as a result of that. And it really sets the stage for what we see in chapter 3 regarding jealousy toward, um, toward the three uh, friends of Daniel. And then it also sets the stage for what we see in Daniel chapter 6 where uh, many of Daniel's enemies uh, 
try to trick the uh, the new uh, median um, median king Darius, and uh, and why uh, so that Daniel will be thrown into the uh, to the lion's den. Uh, jealousy is an awful awful thing. Uh, let's go ahead and read this last verse. It says, Moreover, at Daniel's request, so obviously Daniel didn't forget his friends, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. What do we conclude from all of this? The purpose of Bible study is to, uh, is to make application to our lives. I've written two in your notes there, and we'll just look at them rather briefly. First of all, God is sovereign over the life of every individual. Psalm 139, verse 16, the psalmist wrote, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. See, Daniel was deported and re-socialized for Nebuchadnezzar's service, and yet Daniel was faithful to God and to God's plan for his life, regardless of the cost. If you read Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends would not defile themselves by eating the king's choice food and drinking the choice drink. Um, and they didn't they were determined that they weren't going to do that but they didn't act like knuckleheads they came up with an alternative it's a, it's a real interesting story you, you go back to Daniel chapter 1 and he says how about testing us you know uh, withdraw all this fancy food and drink from us and give us give us veggies and water for 10 days and at the end of 10 days Check us over, look at us, and see if we don't look like we're in better shape than all the folks that are on the king's diet. And apparently the, uh, they were given grace in the eyes of the administrator who was in charge of them there in Daniel 1. And, uh, and he said, well, that's fine. That, uh, you know, I, I don't want to lose my head to the king, but I think I can, I can, I can give you a 10-day test. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked better than all the other guys did. And so they were allowed to continue on that, uh, on that diet. Say, so they were faithful to God and to God's plan for their lives, and, uh, regardless of what the cost was. Isn't it interesting that God used a pagan king's dream to bring Daniel to a place of great influence, a place where he would be able not to feather his own nest, but to help his people. And then notice also again, and I just remind you, that Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant from that passage in Jeremiah 27. But he was God's servant to do what? To chasten the nation of Judah. Now, are we seeking to bloom where God has planted us? You know, a lot of terrible things seem to be going on these days. I mean, the unemployment rate is going out of sight, and it's easy to think that every, you know, everything's just going to hell in a handbasket, and that everything must be out of control. But it's not. There's not a molecule out of control. There's not a person out of control. It seems like it sometimes, but it's really not. We don't. We don't always fully understand what we see going on around us. But God ultimately is in control, and He certainly is uh, is sovereign over the life of every individual. Certainly here over Nebuchadnezzar. 
Caesar's life, as I mentioned earlier, over the life, for example, of Caesar Augustus, uh, over the uh, used even uh, Pilate. He used Herod uh, at the same time. Uh, remember, God used Pharaoh uh, in Exodus, which Paul quotes from in Romans chapter nine. Uh, Paul says, "For this very purpose, I raised you, Pharaoh. I raised you up." To do, you raised up Pharaoh to do what? To demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Why did God raise, God raised up Pharaoh? God put Pharaoh in charge in Egypt. Why? Because he was going to glorify himself through what happened. Remember when God sent Moses down to, uh, to Egypt to, to be his, uh, instrument of deliverance for the, uh, children of Israel who were in bondage. He said, you go down there and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But remember this, before you get there, and when you tell him, he's not going to let them go. And the reason he's not is because I'm going to harden his heart. Now, why, did, why would God do that? Because God was going to glorify himself and demonstrate his power through Pharaoh. And how did he do that? Well, he turned Egypt into an agricultural and ecological disaster zone through all of those plagues that came through. And people became afraid of the Jewish people. Many people did because they knew that the Jewish God had uh, had whipped up on all of those Egyptians god uh, Egyptian gods so god is sovereign over the life of every individual he is also sovereign over every nation god determines the ascendancy of nations and their leaders we don't have the time but you can read about that in Romans 13 the powers that be have been established by God Paul is clear about that we may not agree with their policies but we are under obligation to pay the uh, the amount of taxes that we are actually due to pay custom and to honor and respect at least the uh, the offices that are set up before us. We may disagree vehemently with their policies. And believers in Christ have a great responsibility for praying for their national leadership. Uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're to pray for all those who are in authority, even if they, they're from a party, a uh, national party that we don't like. We still have that, uh, that responsibility. So may God help us to recognize that God Himself really is sovereign. And again, in this study, what we've learned is that simply hearing about the power of God is insufficient for really coming to know God. And we'll see how that develops in our next study. Meanwhile, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy and Your kindness and Your goodness and Your love. We thank You that indeed You are sovereign. We thank You that besides You there is no other and we are grateful for that. There are many things that we don't understand. There are many times that we are distressed because it seems as if everything is out of control. But in the final analysis, Lord, we know that it is not. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, 
For other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.